This morning marks the beginning of a journey that we are going to take through the book of Exodus, and it's something I'm, I've been very much looking forward to. So before we, uh, before we jump in, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh Lord, I need you as I bring your word to your people. Thank you for the revelation that you give us in your word, the infallible, inerrant, unchanging word. Thank you that you are a God whose promises remain. Thank you that you've revealed these truths to us and we get to uh, talk about them and unpack them together and see you through your word. Pray that we would have hearts that are, that are soft to be conformed to your word. Lord, help this, this sermon not to be just information that we hear, but help it to be transformative for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We were talking with a, uh, we had a couple over in the church last night for dinner, and um, the wife asked, she said, how long do you think we'll be in this series? I said, well, I mean, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, so. (laughs) Buckle up, yeah. Well, it'll be less than 40 years. This morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus 1 together, but before we get there, I want to act as a bit of a tour guide through Exodus as we look at the book as a whole. Just a few weeks ago, at the beginning of January, I had the opportunity to go to the Museum of the Bible with my brother and his wife and my parents. Now, unbeknownst to me, through a connection of my brothers, he had arranged for us to receive this private tour from this pretty well-to-do employee of the museum named Ryan. So Ryan came and met us and started off by asking us what time we needed to leave by, and he assured us that he could take as little time as we needed, saying, like, the fastest city had ever done this was 38 minutes, going through the whole museum, the whole six, six floors of the museum in 38 minutes. We took a little longer than that. Over the course of the next three hours, Ryan proceeded to walk us through the museum, through each floor, and, and he was flying. And he said, if you, if you took time to read through everything in this museum, it would take you 72 hours to get through. What made the time particularly enriching, though, was Ryan's ability to bring out both the highlights of the museum and the purpose for everything in it. There was one, one Bible he stopped next to, and he said, this Bible is somewhat unremarkable, uh, but this was the first Bible that the guy who had this idea for the museum bought, and he bought it in 2009. And he was explaining how, so he bought this Bible in 2009 before he even had this idea of this museum, and eight years later, we're opening up this world-class museum. He's like, only God could do that. Now, when I went to the museum again with Christine and our kids a few weeks later, it was a very different experience. We didn't have this personal tour. It was great. It was still incredible, but not as great as having someone point out why certain things are present and what's important. This morning, and even through our series, I hope to be, and Larry as well as he preaches, a, a Ryan as we make our way through Exodus. There's a lot, of, lot that happens in this book. And we won't be able to look under every rock. It's kind of like the museum with 72 hours of content. This morning, I'm going to give you the 38-minute tour. And then over the next six months or so, Larry and I will attempt to give us understanding for what's important, for why certain things are here and why they matter to us today. And it's going to be a wonderful journey together as a church. Now, if you're already there, you can go ahead and open up to Exodus 1. This morning's sermon has a twofold purpose. First, I want to provide a brief overview of Exodus, and then the second half we'll be jumping into Exodus 1. It's going to seem like the longest introduction ever to a sermon, but like that's half the sermon. That's my intention. So just a heads up. The word Exodus comes from the Greek term, which means going out, to go forth. It highlights God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt as they go forth into the promised land. Now, the Hebrew title for Exodus is actually different. It's not 
Exodus. It actually is from the first phrase in Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names. That's the, the Hebrew title. In Hebrew, though, not in English. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, this title, it implies this continuity with what comes before it. It, In Hebrew, it's even more explicit than what we see here. In Hebrew, the first word of the book of Exodus, of verse 1, is and. And these are the names. We don't see that in English. In fact, that's the first word that begins Leviticus, and that's the first word that begins Numbers. And, and, and. These things all go together. These first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they, they make up what's called the Pentateuch. Penta for five, like the Pentagon, five sides. And Tuch, which is the Greek word for scrolls or books. Elsewhere in Scripture, these five books we'll see referred to as the Law, or the Torah, or the Writings of Moses. These five books, inspired by God, written by Moses, they lay the groundwork for what God's people are to know about God. And they lay out how they can live, God's people can live in relationship with him. Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible. It's 40 chapters long. The first chapter takes place over hundreds of years. The second chapter takes place over about 80 years. And the the other 38 chapters, they take place over just one year. Exodus, it can be divided pretty evenly into two sections, which take place in two different locations. The first half of Exodus, from about Exodus 1 to Exodus 18, talks about Israel in Egypt and then going out of Egypt, the last few chapters there. The second half all takes place at one place, and that's at Mount Sinai. Exodus presents this story of a people on a journey. On a journey from, from the low plains of the Nile Delta up to Mount Sinai. One commentator comments, he says, that this journey reflects a spiritual pilgrimage that brings the Israelites into a closer relationship with God. Their journey to the mountain of God will climax in Yahweh's coming to reside among them. There's this this progression, this movement from low to high, from God as transcendent and ruling over this foreign people in a foreign land to God is very imminent and dwelling among his people. And we see that when in the tabernacle where God comes to dwell with his people. Now I'm really, really excited about this series and I want to give you three reasons why I'm excited. The first reason is story. I'm going to, each of these reasons is going to have a, just one word, story. That's the first reason I'm excited. Exodus is an incredible story. In fact, it's one of the greatest stories. But what makes it all the more compelling is that it, it's not self-contained. It's not just about itself. It points forward to an even greater and bigger story. Stories matter. And if you know me well, I'm not the kind of person to make that statement. I really like reality and information. I'm not a big guy in fiction and imagination. For most of my adult life, I fell asleep in every movie I watched. I tried to read Lord of the Rings one time, and I just gave up on it. The only fiction I've read since high school has been to my children before I put them to bed. But as time goes on, the more important I'm realizing stories are. Stories, they shape us. They're formative for us. One philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, he's observed this, like many before him, that stories shape who we are. We become who we are through stories. He writes this. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? We have to know what stories that we are a part of in order to know how we are to live. Exodus points us again and again to the story that we are a part of. It's the story that encompasses 
every other story. One friend of mine, Mike Cosper, he writes this. He says, At the heart of our faith is the bold claim that in a world full of stories, with a world's worth of heroes, villains, comedies, tragedies, twists of fate, and surprise endings, there is really only one story. One grand narrative subsumes and encompasses all the other comings and goings of every creature, real or fictitious, on the earth. And this story is the story of redemption. And Exodus gives us much of the language and the imagery for this story. As you make your way even through the rest of the Old Testament, the Exodus from Egypt, this phrase, out of Egypt, comes up 114 times outside of Exodus. The Old Testament's constantly pointing back to this deliverance. It's all over the place. So Exodus is going to help us to be familiar with, with this great story so we can better understand this whole story. Now, for those of you who sat through our Sunday class back in the fall, you'll remember the term we used, biblical theology. Biblical theology. Biblical theology seeks to understand this narrative of Scripture, this story of the Bible. You see, there is no book, there's no book like this book. It's comprised of 66 different works written by around 40 different people over 1,500 years. It's written in various styles and different languages. This book has one divine author behind it all. God himself, he tells one story from creation to fall to redemption to consummation. And Exodus, a compelling story on its own, throws us into the middle of that story. And it gives us what are known as types. Types are a form of analogy that point forward to something better to come. God's deliverance from Israel, I mean for Israel, for, to, out of Egypt, incredible as it is, points to a greater deliverance to come. God's dwelling with God's people through the tabernacle points forward to a more intimate dwelling as Jesus Christ comes and tabernacles with us. That's what John 1.14 says. It dwells with us. The Bible doesn't say that the future will bring us back to some golden age, some glorious past. No, the Bible points us forward to a better hope, a more glorious hope. Knowing the story of the Old Testament, understanding the book of Exodus, it gives us a deeper appreciation for what has come and what is still to come. As we make our way through Exodus, we're going to be learning things together, seeing things that maybe we've never seen before, understanding familiar stories in better ways. And this leads to the second reason I'm excited about the story. So the first is story that, that I'm excited about this series. And the second is theology. Theology. Just as Exodus gives us imagery and language for the broad storyline of Scripture, Exodus also lays a foundation for Christian theology. The themes of this book, they ripple out into the rest of Scripture. To better understand Christ and his work, the gospel, the good news of salvation, we need to go back to Exodus. In redemption, we see God redeem his people out of Egypt, delivering them from the oppressive rule of the king of Egypt. This is the groundwork for God freeing us from the bondage of sin. We see God being faithful to his word. We see something of his character and his commitment to his covenant. We sang earlier about his promises remaining. God always keeps his promises. We see his sovereignty. God exercises control over every circumstance, every person. Even this foreign land, this foreign people. God is exercising control over the details. He is sovereign. We see truths about the incarnation. 
I mentioned just the, the tabernacle. Much of Exodus, the second half of Exodus, is focused on the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is talking about God coming to dwell amongst his people. And that all points forward to the incarnation, where God comes and dwells with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Through the Passover, we understand something more of who Christ is. He is the Lamb of God. God sends his Son to shed his blood so that we might be free. We see a picture of this in the Passover. And in Exodus, we see we are given the law, the Ten Commandments. God provides instruction for his people on how to live as his people, how they are to live in covenant relationship with him. And one thing about the law that we'll see throughout Exodus, and which we see repeated throughout Scripture, is that redemption always precedes rules. Redemption comes before rules. Grace comes before the law. The indicative comes before the imperative. Exodus again and again emphasizes God's initiating action and God's people responding to this action. So when we come to Exodus 20 and it goes through the Ten Commandments, God, God says of himself, I am the Lord who delivered you out of Egypt. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. It's because of what he's done that we are to follow him. Exodus is a book which teaches us theology, and it teaches us to know God. That's what theology is, the study of God. Commentator Desi Alexander, he writes, From start to finish, Exodus explores how Yahweh takes the initiative in order that the Israelites and others may know him more fully. The Exodus story is a multifaceted diamond that witnesses to God's compassion, faithfulness, glory, holiness, justice, majesty, mercy, and power. This is what we get to dive into as we dive into Exodus. And this leads us to the third reason I'm excited about our time together through Exodus, and that's worship. Worship. I think at times our approach to reading Scripture can look... A lot like looking at Scripture as if it's some manual to tell us what to do, combined with these encouraging words, these inspiring thoughts. And functionally, this looks like reading Scripture or sitting under the preached Word and only looking for application or encouragement. I think many of us are just disposed this way. We come and we want, tell me what to do. So whether that be reading God's Word in the morning or coming and sitting under His Word, tell me what to do and encourage me. Like, make me feel good. Our primary question though, as we come to God's Word, should not be, what does God want to say to me? Our primary question when we come to God's Word should be, what does it say about God? Scripture reveals God to us, and it does this more clearly than anything else. You'll hear people sometimes say that they know God through creation, like that's how I'm going to experience God, or they know God through some experience. It's this incredible experience, and that's how I know God. And yes, you can know God through these things, through creation, through experience, through relationships, but these are not sufficient on their own. They're not enough. The best way to know God is the Bible. Put another way, the Bible presents the most vivid picture of God available. The Bible is like God in 4K HD. It's it's as good as it gets. The Bible is not just presenting a collection of information about God. It gives us stories that put on display his character, his work, and the reality that he alone is worthy of worship. And this is exactly what Exodus does. One commentator says, he says, The Bible is an argument to God's people that God is worthy of our worship. In the book of Exodus, we receive one of the primary distillations of this reality. Exodus is about making God known as he is to his people and to the world. 
I've actually borrowed the title of this morning's sermon from a book on the book of Exodus called The God Who Makes Himself Known. This is the driving point of Exodus, to make God known as he really is. So when we come to the Bible, when we come to the Old Testament, when we come to Exodus, we want to be reading starting with this question. What does this say about God? How does this make God known? What does this passage reveal God to be? As we make our way through Exodus, we're going to witness this remarkable reality of the God of Israel, of our God. We will see him as incomparably compassionate, as unfailingly faithful, as unmatched in his rule and his reign, unprecedented in his redeeming. This God who alone is worthy of our our worship, he is ruling and redeeming. He is powerful and he is present. He is sovereign and he is saving. This is our God. Now one final note before we turn to our text. I mentioned earlier how the Bible is written in many different styles. It's, these are called genres. Given our context, we tend to gravitate towards a certain type of genre. And that's discourse. That's where we like to go, like the epistles of the New Testament. These seem more relevant to us. They're very direct. They're written to the church after Christ came and then ascended back to heaven. They also tend to be more logical, particularly those from Paul. You can preach a section of one of Paul's letters, and you see, like, oh, that's the main point. It's right there. And, oh, great, he's got, like, three supporting points that follow it. This is all, like, very clear and very helpful. We like this. It makes, like, taking notes really easy. We get the main point up front, and then we get all these supporting points afterwards. This is called deductive preaching. But Exodus, in most of the Bible, is not written this way. As I've already explained, more often than not, it's, it's telling a story. This is called narrative. God gives us truth dressed up in real life. So the structure of the sermons that we preach through Exodus, they're going to feel different. Many of the sermons, like this morning's, it's going to be inductive, not deductive. An inductive sermon begins with a question, and then as we make our way through a text, we'll get to the answer as we go. This means that the main point, it will often come at the end of the story. And often there aren't going to be three neat and tidy points that give us a nice clean outline. If the text is a story, often we are going to preach it as a story. So just a heads up on that so you're aware as we're going into it that you should be listening a little bit different, differently. This is not about, there's not going to be a test afterwards. This is not about information. This is about transformation. We want our hearts to engage with the story of who God is, how he, how he works in reality, in real life. So as we go, be listening for these questions and look forward to the answers that God gives us through the stories of Scripture. Now with that lengthy introduction out of the way, let's look together at Exodus 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, 
Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. The story of Exodus 1 has a very clear flow to it. We see fruitfulness followed by oppression followed by more fruitfulness, followed by oppression. Despite popular belief, these things happen to normally go together. Fruitfulness and oppression. Goodness and suffering. Comfort and challenges. In our minds, we really like the idea of these things being separate. If it's good for us, we want it to be all good. All good everywhere. This is the hope that the false teachers of the prosperity gospel hold out. They say, if you give yourself to God and give me your money, it's going to go well with you. You can have your best life now. But this flies in the face of biblical teaching. It's a denial of how God works in the world, the normative experience for the Christian. And that which we see right here in Exodus is that God's people live under his blessing while at the same time experiencing pain, difficulty, and challenges. This is what all of God's people have experienced, always. You can't find a person in the history of the church or in scripture who followed God and had it all good all the time. Yet so often that's what we expect. So we're surprised when things are hard. We are discouraged when we're criticized. We doubt in the storms of life. What we don't often have eyes to see are that trials in life are means that God uses to make himself known. Now this is the question we're going to be looking at in our text. How does Exodus 1 make God known? It's the question we're asking. What does this passage reveal about God? Now in order to really understand our text, we need to start at the beginning. And I don't mean Exodus 1-1, I mean like the beginning. You see, no story in human history begins within itself. Only God begins with himself. God is the only story that has no beginning, because he has always been. We all begin in the middle. Our beginning, or our story's beginning, has already been made by what came before. 
Exodus, it makes this even more clear through the way it begins. I already pointed out that, and these are the names. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now there are a couple things about this first verse that point us back to what has come before. The first is that and. Flip back to uh, Genesis 46.8, just a couple pages. You'll see the beginning of that paragraph. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Sounds pretty, pretty familiar, right? It's almost word for word, just like Exodus 1.1, Genesis 46.8. There's this intimate relationship we see being established between these two books. Second, another thing that highlights this connection is the use of both Israel and Jacob for the same person. The author does not even explain this, but assumes that, like, we already know, this is understood. Israel is the name that God gives Jacob in Genesis 35. So even from the very first verse, it becomes clear that in order to understand Exodus, we need to understand Genesis. We need to have a grasp of Genesis. The connections between Exodus and Genesis, they don't end there. One commentator even goes as far as to say that it is impossible to comprehend Exodus fully without having first digested the whole of Genesis. Now, sadly, this morning, we don't have time to digest the whole of Genesis. But in order to give us our bearings, I want to I look at a few points in Genesis that helps us answer the question we're dealing with in, with in Exodus 1. Namely, how does this text make God known? Now, you may or may not have noticed that Exodus 1 only mentions God in relation to the midwives. They feared God, so God blessed them. But we never get any other mention of God. You know that cliche, like, gone but not forgotten? God in Exodus 1 is forgotten, but not gone. You see, God is always at work making himself known, showing his glory, showing his power, and being unfailingly true to his word. Now, I so said we're going to look at some highlights from Genesis to give us our bearings. The first place I want us to look is Genesis 1. And these uh, texts are going to be on the screen, so you don't have to turn there. Genesis 1 recounts the story of creation. How in the beginning was God. And he spoke all things into existence. And his creative work, it culminates in making man and woman in his own image. Equal in dignity, yet distinct. And in Genesis 1, 27, 28, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When we come to Exodus 1, this is just what is happening. God made man as his image bearers to be a reflection of who he is that his glory might be made known. That's, that's anthropology, biblical anthropology. God made man in his image so that we might be a reflection of his glory. That's why we're to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.28. The more God's people multiply, the more God's glory is made known. So in Egypt, Israel, God's chosen people, in verse 7, Exodus 1 verse 7, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Without seeming to know it, Israel was fulfilling God's call in creation. His creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. This is exactly what was happening to Israel in Egypt. Now as time goes forward from creation, God gives more specific blessings and covenants to individual people. This begins with Adam and Eve, and then stretches to Noah and Shem, 
And then in Genesis 12, we come to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Abraham, who was first known as Abram. He was a moon worshiper. Literally, he worshiped the moon from Ur. And God calls him in Genesis 12. He says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises Abraham two things in his mission to make God's, his glory known. And that's a land and a people. And he, and he promises him these things so that he might be a blessing to all nations. And Abraham then goes forth to make God's glory known. Throughout Exodus 1, we see part of this promise being fulfilled. Israel is multiplying. They are becoming a great people. So great, in fact, that the king of Egypt, he feels threatened. But even this was part of God's plan to make his glory known. After Abram went out from his homeland to follow God into the land that he would give him, God, after several years, God renews his covenant with them. Abram was getting old, and he still had no children. So how could he be a great nation? Well, God tells him in Genesis 15 that his very own son will be his heir, and that his children will be as numerous as the stars, and that he will be given a land to possess. There it is again, a people and a land. Abram asked God how this will be. How can he know? And the next scene is a signing of a contract. It's a different process than than it is now, and it's far more bloody. Animals, they're cut in half, and committing parties are supposed to walk between them. Now, only Abram, in the midst of this contract signing ceremony, he falls asleep. Now, while Abram is sleeping, hear what the Lord tells him in Genesis 15, verse 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is what God is, God is saying. Hundreds of years before we see what's happening in Exodus 1. Then with Abram still sleeping, God ratifies his contract with Abram. Only Abram, I mean, again, he's sleeping. And so God is the one who commits completely to this contract, to this covenant. God is saying that he will be faithful to his word. And the story of Genesis, it goes on from there. God gives Abram, now Abraham, a son, Isaac. And Isaac has two sons. God chooses the youngest one to bless, Jacob. And Jacob, as we know, has 12 sons. And there's all kinds of drama with these 12 sons. One of the sons, Joseph, ends up in Egypt, and he's imprisoned, only to be delivered from prison and made a ruler in Egypt. If you aren't familiar with that story, I would encourage you to read Genesis 36 through 50. Because it's incredible what God does, though, though his brothers mean something for evil. Long story, very short, Jacob's whole family eventually moves to Egypt to live off the good of the land there. And Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And this is where Exodus 1 picks up. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. So here is God's chosen people, left in a foreign land, and their leader, he's gone. We can't read Exodus without 
understanding the stuff in Genesis. We can't read Exodus without knowing what God has said already and promising his people a land and that they would become a great nation. After several generations, this new king of Egypt ascends. Who In verse 8, he tells us he did not know Joseph. And because of Israel's prosperity, he feels threatened. So the foreign king in a foreign nation makes the lives of this people exceedingly difficult. So this foreign people in a foreign land, under a foreign ruler, they're oppressed. And then we come to verse 12, Exodus 1. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. God is still being true to his promises. The Israelites, they continue to multiply and to prosper. And this terrifies the Egyptians. So the foreign ruler enslaves them, making their lives even worse. Then the situation becomes even more dire, and the king of Egypt calls on the midwives to murder every baby boy. But brothers and sisters, God always keeps his promises. The plan doesn't work. Exodus 1.20 tells us that the people multiplied and grew very strong. So amidst all of this oppression, God is still being faithful to his promises. Regardless of what the foreign ruler of the foreign nation attempted... God's faithfulness prevailed. This is our God, the faithful God. Exodus is going to tell us about this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Israel. Exodus tells about this God who is our God. It tells us how he acts in history, how he has power over all things, even foreign rulers and foreign nations. This is why the psalmist in in Psalm 112, he can write, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Here are the people of Israel, God's chosen people. All of that first generation that's come into Egypt at the good and generous hand of Joseph, they've died. And their children have died. And their children's children have died. 400 years have gone by. And their ancestors have been forgotten. Maybe even God's promises have been forgotten, which it seems like has been made pretty clear in Exodus 1. But God never forgets his promises. The people of Israel labor in Egypt under the oppressive rule of the king of Egypt in slavery. Their baby boys are commanded to be murdered. The king of Egypt aims to make their life miserable and uses them to his own advantage. This foreign people in a foreign land, they toil hopelessly. They feel forgotten. But God never forgets his promises. Even when Israel forgets God, God has not forgotten them. This is what we learn about God in Exodus 1. Exodus 1 shows us that despite the forgetfulness of his people, God never forgets his people and his word. Despite the forgetfulness of his people, God never forgets his people and his word. God is the promise-keeping God, the never-neglecting God. He keeps his word even when we forget his word. I love how the song that we sang earlier puts it. Everything changes, but you stay the same. Your word and kingdom endure. So our response is we lean on the promise of all that you are and trust forevermore. This is our God. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is making himself known for his glory and for our good. Now, I don't know what this week holds for you coming up. I don't know what last week held for you. I know what it held for some of you. Whatever you're facing... And however far God seems from you, this 
is our God. If you've turned to Jesus Christ and placed your hope in Him, repented of your sins, this is your God. This is our God. Despite how far He seems, He is near. And Exodus is going to lay out for us and point forward to us how He comes near to dwell with us, to be with us, a people for His own glory. In this life, we're not promised an easy road. But we are promised a sure future. Just as God promised to Abraham a people and a land, God has bought with His own blood through Jesus Christ a people for His own glory. And we anticipate a heavenly kingdom, a holy city, and everlasting joy as we dwell with Him. Take comfort in the God who was made known in Exodus. God's promise to Abraham, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, it points forward to a better promise, a greater deliverance, the unfading hope of communion with God through Jesus Christ forevermore. I want to close by reading from Psalm 124, which was a psalm of ascents. And so as later, as, as uh, Israelites made their way to Jerusalem, they would, they would recount these psalms and they would recount the work of the Lord. This is what the psalmist writes. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help, brothers and sisters, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. What a hope we have in the God who makes himself known as the one who is sovereign and saving. Despite our forgetfulness, despite the forgetfulness of his people, God never forgets his people and his word. Praise be to God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Now, Father, we look to you, the one who is sovereign over all and saving, the one who redeems our lives from the pit. Thank you for delivering us in Jesus Christ from the bondage of sin and death. Thank you that we have a sure hope as we look to you. Regardless of the suffering that we face, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of, of, the, of the, the challenges that pervade our lives, thank you that you are on your throne, ruling and reigning and present. Amen. Lord, we proclaim how great is your faithfulness. Amen.